Heavenly Father, we do pray that your spirit would be at work in our hearts and through the pages of scripture for our assistance and encouragement. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As humans, we tend to enjoy opportunities we have to look behind the scenes of things, to see what things are like away from public view. Take movies, for example. It's often very interesting to get behind the scenes of movies and find out how they were made. Now, last year, my family was overseas and we had the great privilege and opportunity to go to the Harry Potter movie studios just outside of London. And there we enjoyed seeing some of the sets from the movies and we learned about how the movie was put together. We saw, for example, Harry Potter's bedroom beneath the stairs, which Charlotte and Bill are currently standing in front of there. And uh, we also saw you know, the Hogwarts castle and the model which it was based on. We saw how blue and green screens work, so you can film someone in front of that and they can put behind that some other, something entirely different. And we even had Bill and Charlotte sitting on broomsticks in front of, I think it was a green screen, and then we got afterwards a movie which showed them flying through the air all around Hogwarts just like they were in a movie. It was was really interesting getting this behind-the-scenes look. But it can also be very interesting getting a look behind the scenes with people as well. I mean, many people are fascinated by the lifestyles of the rich and famous. Think of the times you've been to the doctor and you've been sitting in the waiting room and there on the table next to you is, I don't know, Woman's Day, New Idea, Who Magazine and Vogue. And if you look at it, you find out about, I guess, you know, what people's lives are allegedly like. But it's not just famous people that it's good to learn more about. It's good to learn about people, more normal people like us as well. You, know, you get to know someone, find out what they're like, you perhaps visit their home, you see what sort of paintings they've got up, what books are in the bookshelves, what music they listen to, etc, etc. It's really very interesting. Now sometimes um, going behind the scenes with people is perfectly appropriate and helpful, but sometimes going behind the scenes with people can be an invasion of privacy. Think of the paparazzi, those photographers who used to hound celebrities to their detriment, Princess Diana, uh, for example. And I guess away from famous people, sometimes there are people who are just a little bit too nosy, aren't they? So, you know, it's good to see behind the scenes, but we've got to make sure it's appropriate. Now, in today's passage, in the Matthew chapter 3 passage, we get the ultimate sneak peek. We get the ultimate behind-the-scenes look at something or other. And in this case, it's not in any way improper. It's not voyeuristic. Uh, The sneak peek we get is in fact a sneak peek that God wants us to get. We look behind the scenes at things God actually wants you and me to see. Because uh, in today's passage, as we look at the baptism of Jesus, we're given a sneak peek, a behind-the-scenes look at what God the Father thinks of God the Son, Jesus, and all the many ramifications which come from that. Now, as we reflect, I guess, on this sneak peek information, there are some truths which I'm going to try and unpack, which I think are really helpful for us, regardless of what our life is like at the moment. If our lives are going well at the moment, it will be an encouragement. If our lives are difficult at the moment, there are truths in this sneak peek look at God, which I think will be of genuine, and I mean genuine help to you. 
So if you're after a bit of encouragement and inspiration, I hope this passage will be for you. Now as you've heard, we're continuing our Term 4 series in the book of Matthew, looking at Matthew chapters 1 to 4, and this morning we're up to chapter 3, verses 13 to 17. An outline of the key points, as usual, are on the Winmalee insert, and uh, we're looking at the baptism of Jesus. Now verses 13 to 15, I'm going to think about identification, and then in verses 16 and 17, where we will spend most of our time, uh, we're going to be looking at God's declaration. So first identification, then declaration. Now let me remind you of where we're up to in the Gospel of Matthew so far. Uh, Jesus was born amidst extraordinary events. There were uh, dreams, there were announcements, there was a divine pregnancy. Jesus is born. The Magi, looking for the King of the Jews, visit. Herod then finds out about it and uh, Mary and Joseph are warned to flee with Jesus for their protection, to protect them from Herod. They escape to Egypt where they live for a period of time as refugees. After a while they're able to return to Israel but instead of going to Jerusalem, the capital, they go up north to Galilee and settle in a fairly nondescript backwater town known as Nazareth. Then many years passed. Last week, uh, if you were here, you would have looked at the start of chapter 3 and we see that the country of Israel is buzzing. There is a major religious movement taking place. A guy called John the Baptist is spearheading it and people are coming to John the Baptist from far and wide to hear what he has to say, confessing their sins and being baptised. It's really big news. And then we get to today's passage, first starting at verses 13 to 15, point one identification, and we see that Jesus emerges from the relative obscurity of Galilee and Nazareth and he comes to John. Look at verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptised by John. So in one sense, Jesus is just one other person coming to John for baptism, one of many. But the noteworthy thing is not that he's just any other person, but it's Jesus. You might think, well, hold on. Why is Jesus coming to a baptism which is for repentance? I mean, what does Jesus have to repent of? Why does Jesus need to be baptised? Isn't Jesus supposed to be perfect? Don't we learn in the book of 1 John that it says of Jesus, in him was no sin. Now, whatever John the Baptist may have understood about Jesus at this point, and it's clear that he realised that Jesus was someone great, and he probably knew that Jesus was the person he was actually preparing the way for, John quite rightly says, you know, I need to be baptised by you, and do you come to me? I mean, what are you doing being baptised by me? It should be the other way around. Why is Jesus coming? It's a good question. It would be a bit like Chris Shearman coming to me after the service and saying, oh, look, Stephen, I wonder whether you could give me a few pointers on how to play the piano and the guitar and how to arrange musical presentations. I mean, that would be ludicrous. If, it should be the other way around, shouldn't it? You know, I would sit at Chris's feet and have him explain to me the wonders of music, not the other way around. It's a bit like that here. But Jesus insists that he still wants to be baptised and he gives a reason in verse 15. He says, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfil all 
righteousness. And then John consents to baptise him. Now, many people have given their best shot at trying to explain what fulfilling all righteousness means. Let me give you a few options as to what it might actually mean. One is that while Jesus doesn't need to repent, Jesus does want to indicate that he plans to continue to live his life in obedience to God the Father. So perhaps he undergoes baptism to publicly demonstrate that he intends to continue to be obedient to God the Father. In this sense, he's baptised to fulfil all righteousness. Another option is to think about righteousness. Now, righteousness is something which fully accords with God's will or with God's coming kingdom. Now, Jesus is about to embark on a ministry which is going to bring in God's kingdom and the message of salvation. So perhaps he's being baptised for righteousness in this sense. It's a sort of a salvation thing which he's about to start, which he's pointing to. Or perhaps he does it to identify with the people he came to save, to sort of express solidarity with them. Because Jesus lived the, sorts of life, lived the sort of life that God's people were supposed to live in obedience to God, following you know, God's ways, etc., etc. And God's people were supposed to get baptised here. Perhaps Jesus is getting baptised so as to identify and be in solidarity with those people he came to save. Now, uh, all of those reasons might be right. Some of them might be right. But the third one I find really interesting. Jesus trying to express solidarity with his people and identifying with his people. You see, here but elsewhere, Jesus does many things which, I guess, shows solidarity with the human race. See, for a start, Jesus came to earth and took on the form of a human being. So Jesus knows what it's like to be human. He was one of us. Now, sometimes people wonder whether God really knows how they feel. Sometimes people think, you know, God is like some distant divinity, detached from us and our situations. There was a song a few years ago where a lady sung, uh, What if God were one of us? A lady called Joan Osborne sung that. Some of you may remember it. But, of course, God did become one of us. He did become human. And for that reason, he knows what it's like to be us not from a distance, but from personal experience. Now, there's a verse from Hebrews chapter 4 which summarises an aspect of this which I personally have found really helpful. It comes from Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. It says as follows, We do not have a high priest, that's Jesus, who is unable to empathise with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. It says there that Jesus doesn't just know what it's like to be us, but he empathises with us, he sympathises with us, and he does that in our struggles. Now, as I've sometimes mentioned in the past, when I was in my mid-twenties, I suffered from depression for about a year or so. It was 1989. I felt that no one understood me. I didn't understand myself. I thought I shouldn't be depressed, I should know better. I was quite hard on myself at the time. But one of the passages of scripture which really helped me in that year was Hebrews 4.15 because I reminded myself there that Jesus knew what it was like to be me, he understood me and he sympathised with me. 
And the fact that God sympathises with us in our weaknesses, I have found very helpful myself. Could I recommend that to you, if you're struggling in something or other, that God sympathises with us, he empathises with us, he knows what it's like to struggle on this planet. I hope that's helpful for some of us. Well, that's 13 to 15. And then with verses 16 and 17, we get to look behind the scenes. We get that sneak peek I referred to earlier. Because here, God the Father makes an incredible declaration about God the Son. Now, there are two key things which take place here. Firstly, the Holy Spirit descends on Jesus. Look at verse 16. As soon as Jesus was baptised, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. So this appears to be some sort of divine anointing with the Spirit which is given to Jesus at the beginning of his public ministry. But then the Father speaks, verse 17, and a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. Now, if a nuclear bomb could be a good thing, if you could have a nuclear bomb, which when it exploded, spread love and goodwill and beauty and support and encouragement rather than destruction, if a nuclear bomb spread good stuff, that phrase there, I think, is a real nuclear bomb of a phrase. It is so wide-ranging and significant in what it has to say. Its ramifications are massive. Let me start to give a few. God the Father describes Jesus as his son, which is consistent with Jesus being the son of God. God the Father says, this is my son, which actually picks up from Psalm chapter 2 verse 7 in the Old Testament. Now Psalm 2 was a messianic psalm and looked forward to the Messiah. So this, in God the Father using these words, is consistent with Jesus not just being the son of God, but also his being the Messiah. And then the second part of what God has to say, uh, this is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased, that picks up the idea of Isaiah 42 verse 1, which was read for us a little earlier, where it says, Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. Now Isaiah at this point is talking about someone called the servant, this figure called the servant who was going to come in the future and suffer for his people. So in this short phrase where God declares what he thinks of his son, we see that Jesus is consistent with Jesus being the son of God, the Messiah and the servant. When you put all this together, we get an image of Jesus as someone who is incredibly great, but also we see humility as well because the servant was a humble figure. Greatness and humility together. Now, as we follow Jesus' ministry through Matthew and through the New Testament, we see that his ministry was certainly consistent with that. There was greatness there. He did great things. But there's also humility there as well. Now, those of us who are followers of Jesus, which I trust is all of us, that's what our lives should be like as well. As we follow Jesus, there are great things that God can have us do. But we're also supposed to display humility as well. Some of you may remember a few weeks back I referred to an English popular historian called Tom Holland. 
I believe he's an agnostic, he's not a Christian, but this year he's published a book called Dominion, The Making of the Western Mind. And in it he outlines what he believes is the incredible influence that Christianity has had on the Western way of thinking, even non-Christian Western people, even secular Western thinking is really impacted by Christian belief and ethics. And one of the many examples he gives is humility. Uh, the idea of being humility being a virtue is a Christian idea. We don't find it anywhere else, as I understand it. And so Jesus is here displaying humility. Now, humility is something that we appreciate when we see it in others. We don't like people big-noting themselves. We like people being humble. In sport, the phrase sportsmanship is often applied to people who are humble in victory, gracious in defeat. Humility is something which is, uh, something which is greatly appreciated and admired. Jesus shows humility and greatness in his ministry and here Jesus' identity encapsulates greatness and humility as well. But then let's think about this phrase a little bit more because when God speaks about his son and declares what he says, new dimensions of God are unfolding because we're seeing here that while God is one God, God is also a trinity. There is God the Father, God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. Now I don't know whether you've ever had one of those I didn't know that about you experiences in life where you've been talking to someone or reading about someone or watching some, someone and some, suddenly it dawns on you that this person can do this or do that or is like this or like that and you never knew it and you think, I never knew that about them. Now my daughter had a really good I never knew that about them experience approximately 30 metres away from where I'm standing a while back. And uh, she and her, some of her little girlfriends were playing with a soccer ball out on the oval out there and it rolled in the direction of Ern Hillman. Now, Ern Hillman, as we all know, is a lovely man. He's now in his 80s. If my daughter was looking at Ern, she'd probably think, there's a nice man in his 80s with white hair. He's very small and he's a nice man. And as Charlotte saw the ball rolling towards Ern, she probably thought, oh no, I hope it doesn't knock him over. Anyway, the ball gets closer to Ern, so he leans down, picks it up, throws it in the air and goes, boot, like that. And it went miles. And yet far further than any of the girls were kicking in. And you, I just, Charlotte sort of goes, like her jaw was on the ground. And I even saw it myself and my jaw was halfway there. I thought, wow, I didn't know Ern had that in him, but it was a, it was a fine kick. You know, uh, Charlotte's understanding of Ern really expanded, as did mine. Now, Here in this scene, if we'd been around then, our understanding of God would have really expanded as well because we would have learned a whole lot of new things about God or at least had them pointed to which we wouldn't previously have realised. Now, um, we know a lot about God from the Old Testament. We know that he is gracious and merciful and, and just. We see him showing his grace in creating the world and saving people. We see that God is described as being one, Deuteronomy 6.4 says the Lord is one. We know that God has a spirit. There's God's spirit. We know that there is a Messiah coming. But you wouldn't look at the Old Testament and understand that God was also a trinity. That would not have been clear. Yet, when we get to the New Testament, we still learn that God is one, but we say that God the Father is God. We're also starting to say that Jesus, God the Son, is God and God the Holy Spirit is God as well. And this is where we get the doctrine of the trinity from. One God 
but three persons. One God, God the Father God, God the Son God, God the Spirit God. One God, three persons, yet one God, yet three persons, yet one God, yet three persons. Now, many people have struggled to understand this over the years and a very good effort at trying to, I guess, explain the Trinity uh, came around in the 8th century with a thing called the Athanasian Creed. And if you happen to get one of the prayer books from the back shelf when you go out and turn to page 625, there's about two pages which set out the Athanasian Creed. Uh, one of the things it does is it, it tries to explain the Trinity to us in a helpful way. So part of it says, we worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity, neither confounding the persons nor dividing the substance. You don't sort of, they don't just become one, but they don't become three separate persons either. Now the Trinity is the clear teaching of scripture, but it can be a little difficult to get our head around. In fact, it's probably impossible to fully understand the Trinity. The Trinity has no parallel in human experience There's nothing we can point to and say, oh yeah, that's just like the Trinity. Now people have tried to illustrate the Trinity using various methods. They've tried to compare the Trinity to an egg, which has shell, yolk and white, or a three-leaf clover. Sometimes people have tried to compare the Trinity to water. You know, water can exist in its ice form, in its liquid form, in its water vapour form. But all the illustrations fall down at some point. So for example, uh, with water... If you have water and you freeze it, it goes to ice. It switches to ice. If you have water and you boil it, it switches to steam or or, or water vapour. But God the Father doesn't switch to God the Son. God the Son doesn't switch to the Holy Spirit. Uh, There's something in that illustration, but it doesn't really work in the end. You see, the Trinity defies the human mind and it's a paradox. But can I say that shouldn't really surprise us. Because if we're created beings living in a creator world and then we start to learn about the creator God, it would be incredibly surprising if we created beings could fully understand our creator. It seems to me incredibly reasonable that we'll understand a lot about God but not everything about God. I mean, we're created beings, for goodness sake. Now, the Trinity is a sort of thing which people would never invent If we were trying to invent God, we wouldn't make up this Trinity idea. But this Trinity idea is just the sort of thing you would expect from God because it shows that our creator is beyond our full comprehension. I think there's something in that. Now, this has many implications. One is that we will never on this planet get to the point where we will fully understand God. We will never fully plumb the depths of God. There is always more to know, always more to dwell upon. We probably should never get to the point where we ever think, Oh, I'm finding God a bit boring now. You know, There is always more to know. As we read, as we reflect, as we pray, as we trust, as we try and live out uh, the truths of Scripture, there's always more to know about God. Hopefully we never get bored. And then there's the really happy revelation which we learn here is that God the Father loves the Son. You know, this is my son whom I love. In him I am well pleased. Now, it's wonderful when you see the love of a father for a son. Uh, at night church a while back this year, I just happened to see one of, the, uh, other, one of the older men in the night church congregation talking to his son, who was in his 20s. The son is now married. But they were just, the father and the son were chatting, obviously enjoying each other's company, obviously having a, a good old chat together. And I remember thinking, 
Gee, that's nice, isn't it? It's nice to see a father and the son getting on really well. And it's a shame when we see problems between fathers and sons. You know, a son struggling to earn the love of his father or a father struggling to get the respect of his son. It's great to see any loving relationship. You know, father, son, parent, child, husband, wife, friends, grandparents, nephews, nieces, anything. It's great to see any loving relationship. But uh, sadly, loving others is often very difficult. So many of us struggle, we we say that we love someone but then we struggle to carry it out. The Beatles, for example, famously sung, All You Need Is Love. Yet when you look at the history of the Beatles, they struggled to carry it out within the band. They had a lot of problems, they eventually broke up. Uh, Many people uh, go to a church and say, I will at their wedding day and then it's just a real struggle to try and pull it off. Uh, sometimes it's not, you know, it, it's just it's just so hard. It, it's not easy. Now all of us want to give love, and all of us want to get love, uh, but it's sometimes very hard to show love, and it's sometimes very hard to find love as well. So where are we going to go? Where we're going to really learn about love? Well, the world expert on love, the source of love, is of course God. Now I know if I said oh, God is love. Most people here would go, oh yeah, I've heard God is love many times before. But could I try and unpack it a bit for you because there may be more to this God is love phrase than you previously realised. Let me see how I go at trying to unpack God is love. What today's passage gives an example of is the fact that there is love within the Trinity. God the Father loves God the Son who loves God the Father. God the Father loves the Spirit who loves the Father, the Spirit loves the Son, who loves the Spirit. Within God himself, there is this network of loving relationships. Now, it's true to say that God shows love because he does, but in and of himself, God still is love because there's love within the persons of the Trinity. You need someone else to love. You need an object of love. God didn't need to create humans so that he had someone to love. He already had this loving network of relationships happening within himself, if you catch my drift. So in this sense, we see, as it says in 1 John 4, God is love, even by himself. Even if he'd never created anything, God would still have been love. Now, this tells us something else, that God is the origin of love, God is the essence of love, to say nothing of being the expert in love. Now, if God was perfectly loving in his relationships, he didn't need to create the human race. It's not as if he needed us to have someone to love, but he chose to create us. So God's choosing to create us is an act of grace on God's part. It's the act of kindness on God's part. And we know that he he created us and that he loves us. Now, here's a mind-changing thought. Not long after the events described in Matthew chapter 3, an event occurred whereby one member of the Trinity poured all his righteous wrath and anger against sin on one of the other members of the Trinity, God the Father on God the Son. Now, what must that have done to this network of mutual love within God himself? You know, it seems quite a violent thing to have done. Now, why did God do that? Well, he did that so that 
the Trinity, I guess, could be opened up to receive people into that network of loving relationships as well so that we could be forgiven and have a relationship with God. The Trinity suffered within himself so that we could become part of that network of relationships as we become Christians, if you catch my drift. We're invited into this mutually loving relational situation for eternity. Now, I'm friends with uh, two ladies from Finland. They are sisters. Uh, One of them I met overseas in London many years ago and she's since gone on to be a missionary in Ethiopia. And uh, these two sisters I'm friends with and uh, these two uh, ladies and an Ethiopian family uh, in recent times have taken into, I guess, their circle of love (laughs) a young Ethiopian boy. Now, he, I think he was in very, very poor circumstances and uh, he couldn't hear, he's, he's deaf, he can only see with one eye. Uh, when a number of years ago his teeth were so bad that they probably would have ended up um, killing him if they hadn't been treated. Uh, but these two uh, Finnish ladies and a, an Ethiopian family have taken it upon themselves to get health care to this young boy, to get education to this young boy and perhaps most importantly to show love to this young boy. So you could say that this little Ethiopian boy has been caught up into this network of loving relationships and from what I've heard it has absolutely transformed this little boy's life. It's a bit like that with us. If we're Christians, we have been in great need but we've been similarly caught up into this network of loving relationships, Father, Son, Holy Spirit and with other believers and being part of that network of relationships is transformative. Now can I say that um, if, if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, if you're not yet a Christian, the sort of love you are looking for is that which is ultimately found with God. We can find lots of wonderful loving situations in this world but ultimately the love we want is found with God by being caught up into that network of loving relationships within the Godhead and within other believers. Now, if we are followers of Jesus, which I trust is most and perhaps all of us, I hope, can I say that this concept, I really think, is something for us to actually dwell about on and think about. The fact that the Trinity has opened us, opened up, so that we can come into it and be embraced within this loving network of relationships. We often say we have a relationship with God, but do we sort of understand it as being caught up into this network of loving relationships? I find that quite profound. I think it's something to reflect on and meditate on. And can I suggest that you might do well to think about that concept? If your life is going well, it'll be a great encouragement. But can I say, if your life is absolutely pear-shaped at the moment, and I'm sure it is for some people, that just reflecting on the fact that we're part of that network of loving relationships within the Godhead, within the Trinity, as well as with other believers, that is a transformative truth. Let me conclude. I referred earlier to that English historian Tom Holland and the book that he wrote, and I mentioned that one of the distinctive aspects of our Western culture which is appreciated today is humility, and that comes from, I guess, Christianity. Another aspect of Western culture which is appreciated today by the secular world is what he calls the preeminence of love or the importance of love. People say love is important. The centrality of love, you could say. Now, it should come as no surprise that Christianity brings this priority to our planet, to our world, because as we've seen this morning, God is love. There is love within God, within the Trinity, and God 
I guess, suffered within the Trinity so as to open it up so that we could become part of that loving network of relationships as well. What a wonderful truth. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we do thank you so much for your word and all that it reveals to us and we thank you for the sneak peek we get this morning into the way that you, Father, relate to your Son and the understanding that it points to of what your being a trinity is like. Lord, we thank you and praise you that you are love and that we can be caught up within that love because of your love for us. Help us to reflect on that and take encouragement and inspiration from it. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.